Hello and welcome to the Six Cells podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Cells. Today I am delighted to be speaking to Rory Sutherland, um, who by now needs no introduction, so we're going to dive right in. Rory, how are you? Not bad at all. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, getting towards the end of the week. It's Thursday, so I, I have that slight sort of... Uh, um, I, suppose, I suppose Thursday is the new Friday now, isn't it? So I'm, I'm feeling slightly demob happy. Yes, Media Thursdays is uh, is long been a thing. Yeah, indeed. Um, so I'm going to dive right in. We're, um, it's a bit of a shit show in the UK at the moment. We've had three prime ministers in the last four that's months. That's not a shit show. Um, uh, that's a, that, that, not... that's a feature, not a bug. Um, I think. Okay. Uh, and Nassim Taleb has just made this point on Twitter, uh, which is a sta- you know actually a stable system uh, is often. Uh, shown by uh, instability of government. I mean, uh, in the sense that the ability to change people while the system continues is actually pretty much a hallmark of democracy. Uh, Secondly, the fact that you make a mistake and you change your mind is not, as I said, is also a feature, not a bug. Um, Strangely, Scott Galloway said that. He said, everybody's going, oh my goodness, don't we look silly changing a government. He said, actually, he thought it was quite impressive. He said, in America, people who'd made a mistake would have doubled down on their mistake. Uh, What the party Mm -hmm. did was go, this is clearly a mistake. We're going to uh, effectively backtrack and change our minds. And I I think we need to be very, um, very alert to this, which is the extent to which Essentially, journalists rate political parties on fidelity of adherence to dogma, on a kind of spurious consistency, is really, really disturbing. Because one of the great lessons of behavioural science is what you do is and should be highly context dependent. You know, you can argue whether or not Thatcherism was a good idea, but patently some aspects of Thatcherism were appropriate to the times in which it appeared. Okay. Now, maybe things are different now. So being an absolutely kind of... uh, The whole point of conservatism is that, in some respects, is that it's not imprisoned by, you know, the writings of some bearded guy from the 19th century and can change its mind and change its clothes according to the the weather. And I I, I just think it's important because this kind of, ooh, there's a U-turn, ooh, they've backtracked, ooh, they've changed their mind. Okay, now... Someone once described socialism as the mistaken belief that you can get things right first time. Now, if you go if you go deep back into sort of political beliefs and dogma and ideology, you know, one of the tenets of, you know, and one of the advantages, I would argue, of proper conservatism, I don't mean ideological conservatism or anything of the kind, is that effectively... Uh, you're realistic enough to realise that in a complex system, you ca- you know, the the problems of the world are now too complicated to submit to straightforward uh, ideological or logical solutions. And so some degree of trial and error in government should be actually part and parcel of what government does. If you create a kind of PR and journalistic atmosphere where anybody changing their mind or responding to new information. I mean, you know, we saw a bit of that during COVID, okay? They got it wrong about airborne transmission. And they the problem wasn't that they got it wrong. They were too slow to change their minds because they'd become invested in their previous opinion. I changed my mind all the time. You know, there are loads of factors which, you know, I've changed my mind about about a third of my political beliefs in the course of my life, maybe more. I don't see that as a failing. It's just, um, as John Maynard Keynes said, when someone accused him of inconsistency, he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Right? 
So I mean, th this is really weird because there is this strange journalistic thing which has started to judge the the um, quality of government through a proxy. It's not the quality of outcomes. It's the extent to which uh, you're, uh, you, you adhere to a kind of ideological consistency. And in business, in business, okay, what what happened with with trust, you know, or I mean, football actually, she would never have lasted. I mean, for, football, they're far too quick to get rid of managers, okay. And well, Arsenal's an interesting case, isn't it? They stood. I, I don't know anything about football, so please tell me if I'm talking complete bollocks. I'm Welsh, so we don't really have it. Um, but Arsenal stuck with that manager through a kind of losing year, if I'm right, okay. You know, so that you know, there's a point at which you persevere, but equally, um, I, I regard that strange sort of thing of PPE. It, it's really sort of PPE Oxford graduates going, "Ooh, you didn't get it right the first time." I mean, we're marketers, right? I mean, half the things we try don't work out. We're informed by what happens. You know, it's a Darwinist. It's a Darwinist process. It's not a. It's not. It's a Darwinist process. It's not an intelligent design process. I think that's a really fair observation and an interesting take on it. However, are we not? Um, should we not expect them to get it right third time? Because we went from Boris to Liz to uh, to Rishi. Now, obviously, Rishi the Sunak might well get it right. But um, and I, I totally take your point. If we if it's not working, then change it. And and I kind of uh, you know I agree with that. But it in terms of trust um, that the people have now in, in the government, that's obviously damaged, right? Well, so, it's so what it's could... partly damaged. If I may be... I, I'm in a minority here, and I accept that. I don't think Partygate, if you look at it, you know, through the eyes of what, what infractions were committed by individuals, I don't... You know, there, there patently was a kind of overly boozy element within the setup. Okay. I'm not entirely sure that if I discovered that my own staff, you know, a certain percentage of our own employees had to go in during lockdown and they had to basically coexist in a bubble in the office. Um, if if I discovered that on Friday they'd cracked open a bottle of wine or a few beers together, personally, I would have just said, you know, I'm very happy not knowing about that, but I'm certainly not going to act. Now, on the other hand, there were egregious things which were done, but I'm not, I'm not giving them a complete sort of hall pass. Okay, in that there were egregious things that were done, but the press did not necessarily get outraged about what was outrageous. They got outraged about what they thought the public could get riled about. So I'll give you an example of this, which has eternally uh, struck me as very strange. And I know him quite well. I mean, you know, reasonably well. Um, but Dominic Cummings was absolutely excoriated for taking his family up to Dublin to deposit them in a house where his small child could be looked after by his nieces, I think it was, right? Actually, given his circumstances, I'm not sure there was anything else he could have done. And ironically, had his own parents lived in Surrey or South London rather than Durham, he would have received very little kind of um, opprobrium for it, okay? So, let, you know, personally, I've looked at that and I've looked at the circumstances and the fact that his security circumstances were not totally irrelevant. OK, he knew he'd have to work a lot, leaving a child with a mother who was ill with COVID. That's a problem. Now, the strange thing he did, which got no attention from the press, was he left a flat that was infected with COVID and walked straight into 10 Downing Street. OK, now, that struck me. Bizarrely, by coincidence, I was invited to attend a meeting in Downing Street uh, shortly before the lockdown when I'd just come back from northern Italy. 
And my reaction was, there's no way I'm going in. I said, you know, you better go and find a speakerphone because I don't want to be patient zero, right? Um, now, so th what struck me as very odd about that press reaction is they completely missed what I regarded as the egregious mistake. And they focused on something which was debatable simply because the public are more likely to get riled by that kind of breaking of the rules argument than they are by doing something which was possibly within the rules, but to be honest, I mean, in my view, weirdly irresponsible. Yeah, interesting. So so I didn't want to jump too deep into a political no, 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 no. Um, but It's interesting because behavioural like, science, behavioral science does change the lens through which you see a lot. Um, and, you know, one of the things I, I thought, you know, this point of Taleb's that actually, uh, you know, it's 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 often it's countries with long rulers that become unstable because they depend on they become dependent on one individual for their stability. OK, what we have is a system just as India has it, a democratic system where you can have re regime change without violence. Yes, for sure. So what's the one thing that Rishi Sunak could learn from the field of behavioural science to help him to win back the trust and steady the ship at Downing Street? Um, I think there is a lot that could be looked at in terms of behavioural economics, in terms of um, how, uh, well, I, first of all, how we're taxed would be an interesting. You know, the interesting thing is all the debate is around the rate of a particular tax rate. And I think it's um, I think it's a, it's kind of a, it comes from appalling kind of aggregate economics, which is you assume that when you mash everybody together, they behave like one average and representative agent. OK, so I'll give you an example of this. Uh, let's park whether the top rate of tax should be 45 percent or 40. OK, and ask a separate question. Should it be 45% in the case of someone who's just extremely well paid and earns, you know, £200,000 a year for 10 years in a row? Yeah, probably, you know, possibly. Okay, we'll, we'll leave that one, okay? But should you take someone at 45% if, for example, uh, let's say they've worked at a, as a teacher for 25 years, you know, lower rate of tax, middle rate of tax, and then for the last two years of their working life, they become a headmaster of a huge school, and let's say, you know, or, you know, the, you know, a, a, a medical consultant. I, I would argue that you should have different tax rates according to how long people have earned those amounts. Okay? Seems, seems logical mm. to you. Right? And yet at no yeah. point... I also think young people should pay a lower tax rate than old people do, by the way, um, uh, in many ways, because they haven't had the opportunity to profit from the uh, asset class inflation that old people have. You know, and also because it's more expensive being young than it is being old in many respects. Um, but at no point is anyone thinking seriously about the tax system. They're just treating it as a kind of, you know, they, they seem to have about three levers. You know, there are interest rates from the Bank of England to control inflation. There are, you know, a couple of kind of income tax rates. Actually, what we need to debate is we need wealth taxes alongside um, and consumption taxes alongside income taxes. And we need to have a really serious look about how we could intelligently change the balance of those things. I mean, yeah. it's worth noting, if you want social mobility, to some extent, one way you get social mobility is uh, by poorer people suddenly earning quite a lot and not being taxed on it very heavily. And actually, wealth inequality is a much, much bigger problem. And intergenerational wealth inequality is a much, much bigger problem than income inequality. 
Yeah. And no okay. one no one's addressed that. No one's addressed the fact that, you know, someone, let's say, well, my age potentially, or five years older than me, who of no particular talent, who happened to buy a house in the right part of you know, London or the South East, you know, at some stage, age 28, has basically received a kind of £400,000 untaxed windfall for doing bugger all, whereas people who actually go out mm. to drive cabs and vans are being taxed on the activity. That seems to me utterly weird, and no one's, no one's at least, at least we should discuss this. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So I want to change tack, mm. if I may. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk to you about B2B. A lot of the, we spend a lot of our time talking Please. about B2C because our clients are brands talking to consumers. But um, I listened to your um, your interview with Stephen Bartlett on the Diary of a CEO. Um, it was kind of a, a perfect storm for me. One of my favourite speakers in you um, on one of my favourite podcasts. So that was a, a delight to listen to. Um, in in B two B organisations like Ogilvy or Six Sales or, or thousands and thousands of others. Um, the business deals are mostly transacted between people. So I would say that um, it is fair to say that B2B should in fact be P2P or, you know, um, it's people to people, essentially businesses, while from a legal point of view, transact with one another. It's the people that do the work. Also, also in B2B, the decision is often made collectively. I mean, it's often made collectively in, in some decisions with, B2, with B2C, obviously, you know, you have a household as the decision making unit, uh, quite often not a single individual. Um, yeah, and in B and B two B, we have buying. Groups, there there, like there a, are certain there are certain categories. There are certain categories where you, which tend to be bedeviled. Uh, very large televisions, for example, tend to be bedeviled by one party in a relationship not wanting a very large television. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's not, it's not true to look at all B two C as if it's purely you know an individual uh, purchase. But B two B two B has certain significant differences the third difference would be that uh, in b2b generally you're asked to justify your decision making and uh in b2c to a large extent so it's quite i mean no, you know, no one asks you to give a sort of you know 10 deck 10 slide presentation on you know why you bought a ford fiesta or whatever Okay, so there is that difference, as I always put it, that in B2C, when you make a decision, you're trying to minimise the risk of regret, whereas in B2B, you're trying to minimise the risk of blame. Now, that in many ways makes B2B more conservative than even, you know, B2C behaviour, which tends towards the conservative, you know, do what everybody else does, do what I've done before. Habit and social copying are the two big kind of gravitational forces in human behaviour. For logical evolutionary reasons, if you're trying to make a non-catastrophic decision, as one brilliant uh, biologist said, um, any food eaten by, uh, you know, eaten three, three days ago by a living organism is, you know, almost by definition safe to eat. And so the fact that we're the fact that we actually are influenced by habit and we're influenced by observing the behavior of others is not proof of irrationality. It's proof of intelligence in decision making under constraints. But in B2B, you have this slightly weird thing, which is you're, you, in a sense, you're almost less worried about the consequences of your decision than you are about the consequences of your decision for you, should that decision turn bad. And so as a result, it's why I think the, the, the four big consulting firms enjoy a huge artificial advantage, you see. Yeah. 
There was that famous, <coughs> excuse me, that famous B2B campaign. Nobody ever got it, fired for buying it. Right? It was never actually an ad campaign. It was a kind of mantra or it was a saying within the IT industry. But nonetheless, it contains a huge amount of truth. Uh, in the sense that uh, what happens if something goes wrong when you appoint, let's say, you know, a large consulting firm or a large accounting firm is if something goes wrong, people blame the, the firm. If you appoint a small boutique firm because you stick your head above the parapet, if anything goes wrong, they'll blame you for not appointing, you know, one of the big four. What yeah. were you thinking? We used to call this in, in the, the Heathrow effect. You know, you always book your boss on a flight from Heathrow because it's the, even if it's, you know, the third best airport or JFK for that matter, because you there's no risk of getting shouted at. Okay. If anything goes wrong, you know, your boss will blame British Airways. Whereas yeah. if you book your boss out of London City or out of Newark, if anything goes wrong, you may get the, you, you may get it in the neck for not booking Heathrow and JFK. Yeah, and it, 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 it's, it's, a it's a sad thing right? because it makes innovation, in a sense, you know, it makes innovation less likely in B two B transactions. You know, at least at least we have this breed of consumer. I suppose you could argue that entrepreneurs are, if you like, the early adopters in B two B. You know, there are certain organisations which will try things differently, but it does make large organisations probably overweighted to defensive decision making. Yeah, for sure. Which is why I would argue that trust and contrast are, um, are so important. Trust in the brand that if, as as you yeah. as you've already alluded to, if something goes wrong, then it's not my fault because we trust the brand. Yeah. We know the brand. In in our industry, it might be Google and Facebook. People have got, although maybe maybe trust and 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 those organisations may be waning slightly. But um, essentially, if you're a media buyer and you want to um, buy a campaign and it goes wrong on Facebook, then it's not your fault because it's Facebook, right? Um, whereas if you buy on um, XYZ Publishing and something goes horribly wrong, then why did you use that? Um, and contrast as well. What well, uh, there's a very simple thing, which is a very simple, you know, everybody else is doing it. Yeah. And contrast is super important as well, I think, because... A lot of times people think that their competitive set is other companies, whereas in fact the status quo um, in, in a defensive decision making scenario, people are more likely to do what they did before and what they're doing currently because <coughs> no one got fired from doing that so far. So let's do that. So if there's not a big contrast between current state, what you're doing now and what could happen with the future state, the likelihood is that you just revert to what you're doing already. I right? mean. The interesting thing, I suppose, we could say is that we need to look at this defensive decision making in because institutional decision making is different because the interests of the decision maker are not aligned exclusively with the interests of the organization. They're aligned with their career interest. OK. And as a result, you know, when you have a potential misalignment like that, you have to be alert to it. One of the questions I'd ask is an enormous amount of work in business seems to me to be ask covering disguised as rigor, which is if I make this decision with not instinctively, but deploying a vast amount of seemingly rigorous analysis. OK, right. If this decision turns out badly, 
because I haven't exercised any subjective judgment, the likelihood that blame will fall on me is reduced. Similarly, the proliferation of meetings in business is caused by the fact that if we make a collective decision, any potential future blame gets diluted and spread rather than all focused down on me, which will be the case if I made yeah. an individual decision. Yeah. And we're much, much more frightened about a decision we personally made, uh, okay, go, turning out bad, than a decision that was made collectively. And so an enormous amount, I would argue that this does, I mean, Gerd Gigerenzer, who's one of the great experts on this, more or less said that, you know, without the arse covering activities necessary for defensive decision making, you know, we could kind of all go home on Wednesday afternoon. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting one. So going back to your uh, Diary of a CEO appearance, um, you said um, about pers something about personal brand, which I liked. Um, I think personal brands in B2B are kind of quite important for the reasons we've already outlined, that most deals are done between people, collections of people perhaps, but people all the same. Um, and, and with Stephen Bartley, you said that everybody has a personal brand, whether you like it or not. So you may as well try to have a good one. So there are people listening to this that love your work, um, hold you in the highest of regard that perhaps have never met you in person. They know you through your content. Um, you're out there quite a lot through your books, through your TED Talks, through your, through your content, through podcasts like this. And so you've built quite an impressive personal brand, I would say, um, that, that um, spans the digital world as well as the physical world that you kind of occupy, if you like, as a person. So I have two questions for you on that. How would you define a personal brand and how valuable has your personal brand been to you in your career to date? Um, as I said, everybody has, everybody has a personal brand to a degree and that reputation is probably essential to the workings of human society. You know, in other words, we invest up front in reputational capital. And since that's a sunk cost, it then kind of behoves us to behave in a way that is consistent with how we project ourselves, okay? So, you know, you can imagine that um, uh, the degree... Of That's one of the principles of persuasion, right, is um, Cialdini's, it's, uh, it's consistency. We like to be seen to be acting in the way that we have projected ourselves. Absolutely. And, so, and it makes sense, of course, because our ability to engage in relatively low friction transactions with other people, whether strangers or people who know us, is affected by our level of effectively you know, brand reach and brand consistency. Um, there's, another, there's another aspect to a personal brand which I think um, is missed by modern um, performance marketing, uh, which is the value of fame as a probabilistic advantage. Let me explain, okay? The whole point of being famous, in a sense, is the opposite of targeting, okay? In it, being indiscriminately famous or more famous than you think you need to be looks like wastage. But it's only wastage in a bizarre parallel universe where we can already quantify the opportunities available to us. One of the values of being famous is that fame causes people to bring opportunities to you from sources you weren't even aware of, okay? Yeah. Now, you know, I'll give you an example of this, which is that... Um, people return your calls. People, there, there, there's all sorts, all sorts of benefits. So one of the things that worries me about this idea of accountable advertising is that um, 
I think I think measuring the measuring the results of your advertising using proxies is a, probably a necessary thing to do. And if ad A pulls more responses in the first week than ad B, you might, I think, within reason, say, well, we should upweight the money we put behind ad, ad A at the expense of ad B. The idea, however, that the sole value of the activity of advertising is generated by by what you have what you can measure is very, very likely to massively underestimate and undervalue the value of just being indiscriminately famous for all kinds of reasons. I mean, I could go into social imprinting. It doesn't just matter what I think of BMW as a brand. It matters what I think my friends think of BMW as a brand. That's one example of kind of necessary wastage. Okay. Another example would be, you know, actually target audiences and much less demographically neat than marketers think, okay? So the idea that you can define in advance where your opportunities come from uh, with a high degree of predictive ability is fundamentally wrong. Let, I think I'll give you an example of this, which, was, which brought it home to me fantastically, which is a few years ago at Cannes, pre-pandemic, uh, Chris Evans, the radio DJ, not the American equivalent, the British radio DJ, was down in Cannes. Uh, one of his assistants had read my book, given it to Chris. He'd had a brief look at the book and invited me on to be interviewed about the book. It's a show with about a million listeners. Now, I kind of thought of the book as having a, you know, a target audience of kind of marketing people, creative people, and maybe a kind of slightly wider halo of other people, uh, you know, in business. You know, I kind of wrote it as a business book, I think. But then I appear on this Chris Evans show, and then the following day, unbeknownst to me, Chris Evans goes on to finish reading the book on the beach and spends the next day on his breakfast show with his one million audience, you know, sharing anecdotes from the book. Now, I meanwhile, you know, that evening, I'm in a hotel room and I go onto Amazon and the bloody book's outselling J.K. Rowling. OK, it didn't last. <laughs> it didn't last. OK, but but for, 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 three or, for three or four days after that interview to a million people, OK, um, I, 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 I was outselling the highway coat. I never managed to outsell the hungry little caterpillar or the book of Nom. There are a few, you know, there are a few books that remained in the top seven, but I was in the top 10 overall books to be sold on Amazon. Now, when you think about that, OK, identifying who amongst those million people in advance might be a customer for my book with all the data processing in the world, is never going to be possible. On the other hand, making a lot of noise for a million people and having 1% of them go, oh, actually, you know, you know, m my nephew Barry is very interested in this kind of thing. I'll buy him the book for Christmas, right? Is stuff we'll never be yeah. able to anticipate. We'll never be able to design it in advance. And so the extent to which by... Oh, and there's the influencer effect of Chris Evans, of course. Oh, yes, yeah. If he likes the book, if he likes the book, he can't, you know, I think it's, by the way, fair. I think if Chris yeah. Evans likes a book, it's unlikely to be terrible, right? We can't say it's the best book in the world. I wouldn't say that if Chris Evans dislikes a book, it's a bad book. OK, I don't think I don't think we can make the opposite inference. But I think, you know, from certain influences of that kind, we can say, well, you know, if Chris likes it. You know, at least it's not going to be a cup of sick. OK. Mm. And so all those things going on. But this this weird thing, you can only obtain um, efficiency in a world where the future is entirely predictable and your target audience is entirely known to you in advance. Well, come on. OK, markets are much closer to meteorology 
okay, than they, you know, than they are to, say, Newtonian physics. These are you know, markets are highly complex systems with lots and lots of forces, some acting in concert, some being headwinds, okay? It's a really, really complicated game. This idea that we can reduce this to, uh, you know, simple formulaic uh, optimization problems is bullshit. Great, I'll, I'll give you give your listeners a few book tips here, and I really, really recommend these. Because the other people who know this, weirdly, the two classes of people who kind of know about know this folly, okay, are actually two very different people, which is kind of creative and instinctive people in advertising and marketing, okay, on the one extreme, think, I, I can't quite explain this, but there's something, there's a mistake we're making here, okay, we're, we're, opt we're optimizing the wrong thing, we're optimizing on the past, they're effectively prizing efficiency over effectiveness, is what they'd say. The other group of people who know this, very different group who rarely come into contact with the first group, are actually shit-hot mathematicians. Not mere mathematicians, okay? Mere mathematicians, you know, basically just try and mathematize things that shouldn't really be done, where it shouldn't really be done. But really shit-hot mathematicians will talk about things like the alignment problem in AI. They'll talk about, for example, the um, explore-exploit trade-off, which is also something that features AI. So this book I recommend by a guy called Brian Christian and someone else called Griffith, I think. Okay, there are two books. There's The Alignment Problem and there's a book called um, Algorithms to Live By. And it's really, really interesting because what what I think that we're almost doing and we're in danger of doing is kind of optimising advertising through GCSE maths. It's not, you know, let's face it, okay, the very best mathematicians probably aren't going to be in our field. Also, there's a kind of vested interest in pretending that your own mathematical system, once it looks plausible, okay, it's people will very are very unlikely to attack something which is mathematically recommended. But the really shrewd mathematicians go, no, no, this is a terrible thing to do. What you're doing is fundamentally a massive distortion. Or what you're attempting to do is fundamentally intractable and you should try and solve this problem some other way. And it strikes me as worrying because if you assume that the quality of people's statistical ability is a bell curve, what that means is indifferent or just fairly good statisticians are going to massively out, outnumber really good statisticians. Now that's probably true of plumbers, really, really great plumbers, are massively outnumbered by jobbing plumbers and quite good plumbers right but a quite good plumber is generally still quite useful a quite good statistician is potentially really dangerous and i i i really i, I you know i mean this absolutely that um you know i mean knowing the seem taleb quite well there were cases where statistical conclusions were drawn during covid from things like trials of cloth masks etc where the bad statistical conclusion of the data was actually diametrically the opposite of what the correct conclusion would have been. Okay. And yet, because people have done, you know, this kind of, well, you know, assuming X, Y, and Z, you know, this means that, you know, A, B, and C. Okay. Those cases are actually, um, you know, incredibly dangerous because of the confidence with which people are wrong. Yeah. So do you think then that, brand advertising um to take it back to our industry for a second brand advertising is missing a trick because of its um because of the necessity of the organization to be able to measure it effectively i i think that brand advertising you can measure to a to a point but there's <coughs> 
as you were saying before, there's so many applications of brand advertising that will do you good that you won't be able to measure. Oh, particularly in B2B, and particularly, in B2B. particularly in B2B. Yeah. Particularly in B2B. I mean, I remember someone, you know, uh, uh, we used to, you know, some, you know, if someone rec recommends that, uh, you know, the board of directors go with a company that the board of directors have heard of, okay? Yeah. You know, it's a fundamentally different persuasive game than recommending, you know, the board of directors approve the appointment of a supplier that's completely unknown. Okay. Hundred percent. All yeah. the, um, you know, as I said, if you're a famous brand, everybody returns your calls. You know, uh, you know, if you, you know, as I always give the example of, you know, let's say Rolls Royce Aero engines. You know, there's a guy Warren East who's actually a school with me, believe it or not, who is the chief executive of Rolls Royce. Uh, who could, um, you know, basically apart from kind of Joe Biden and, you know, uh, you know, maybe President Xi, you know, pretty much everybody's going to return a call. It may take a few days, but he's going to get called back. Now, that's not true of me. OK, um, now, th the fact that there are so many what you might call friction reducing as it's a bit like measuring the effect of oil in an engine. OK. What you can do is, to some extent, you can very dangerously measure the effects of removing oil from the engine. But fame has so many friction-reducing properties at different parts of the organisation where it isn't always quantified or measured at all, that suggesting that the value of advertising at, a, at achieving what, ta what purpose you had defined for it in advance is the sum total of the value of your advertising when advertising generally delivers value elsewhere in the system in ways that are invisible strikes me as an extraordinary danger. So what we've done is we've made something measurable and comparable. Okay. But the net result of it is that we probably grossly underestimate its overall value because we're only measuring its value to the extent that it attains some end that we defined in advance. Okay. Yeah. Now, quite a lot, I would always argue, quite a lot of the benefits of fame are um, uh, you know, highly probabilistic. Okay. I mean, it's very interesting debate, okay, which is we always have a go at our kids when they're teenagers. You say, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be famous. I want to be an influencer, right? And then when I'm famous, I'll be rich. And you go, no, it doesn't work like that. You have to become rich doing something really useful. And then finally, when you're rich because you're and good because you've done something very well, then you become famous. Well, Yes and no, okay? I mean, you know, if you are famous, right, one thing is that opportunities and the ability to reinvent yourself is probably much greater, all right? Okay? You know, you, you get these wonderful... Well, Ronald Reagan, I suppose, being the most extreme case, okay? <laughs> but, mm. but, you know, if you are pretty famous, there, there'll always be people bringing you opportunities. Maybe you end up opening supermarkets or whatever, but nonetheless, okay... You know, things will be brought to you, okay? We, you know, I can't know, okay? If, if you imagine that I'm Keith Chegwin for a second, okay? I can't find out who's opening a supermarket in the, you know, in the Northeast in three weeks' time or whatever it is. You know what I mean? You know the stuff, right? Okay, I can't be party to all the opportunities that might be profitable or worthwhile or at least interesting to me, okay? But if I'm famous, I don't need to worry about that problem, because the people will bring the bring the, the opportunity to me. As long as you're visible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's dead yeah. now, Keith Chambers. That's sad. But he was yeah. the kind of guy who was kind of famous almost gratuitously. You know, there are a lot of those people who are kind of gratuitously famous. Um, 
uh, and you know actually you know your kids when your kids say i want to be famous they're not being totally stupid actually in their in their assessment no. of how the world works especially in today's social media with TikTok and the like, and they're, they're, you know, everyone can be famous. Um, and, and to your point, you don't have to necessarily be famous before you can change. You can become an influencer and, and you'll get your fame through that. YouTubers, for example, there's YouTubers that are just a guy or a girl in a bedroom and that have set up some content that people like and, and ended up making millions of pounds out of it, right? And they didn't get famous first to do that. They did that through their content so it's a it's a different world to when uh, you and I grew it's, up it's also it's also sure. astonishing to the extent to which um these people seem to have satisfied a demand for content which as i said television program makers didn't really appreciate in advance you, you know yeah. at, at some level you know you will only find out what people really want by doing it yeah um if if we'd have asked people what they want, they'd have said a fast. Yeah, Steve, Steve Jobs said something very similar. He said, "You know that uh, you know it's it's not the consumer's job to tell me what they want." And um, yeah, uh, I, I you know I think I think there is something very dangerous because in this defensive decision making world, research is used effectively to sanitize decisions. But but consumer yeah. research is a very very dangerous guide it's not always wrong but i'm not i'm not i'm not one of these people who go research generally off you know generally you can be better off at least having information than not having it provided you're giving the given the liberty to interpret it what was that saying that um is it um attributed to david ogilvy people don't say what they think it's actually think they don't they think what they feel, feel they don't say what they think and they don't do what they say Funnily yes, enough, I don't yeah. think David ever said it. I've tried to find the chapter and verse. But David right. Ogilvy is one of those people, actually, it slightly happens to me occasionally, where I've got to go, no, 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 that wasn't me. That was me quoting someone else. Um, right. And uh, that's, again, a kind of weird fame effect, which is that quotations tend to stick to you. There's a kind of winner-takes-all yeah. effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, but it, it, it is, uh, it does fascinate me, this, because... I, I think that we're basically, as someone put it in, in, in a podcast, I think it was Jim O'Shaughnessy said, you know, that we're actually kind of, we have we have a world of deterministic minds trying to live in a probabilistic world. I love you know, that. Who said that? Well, I think it was Jim O'Shaughnessy. He may have been quoting someone else. He, he's a podcaster in the States, very interesting podcaster. Mm. And that point that we try, that in some ways to justify our actions within any institutional setting we basically take reality and shoehorn it into a kind of simple model mm. okay not because it's the best way to make a decision but because it's the best way to defend and justify a decision um particularly in the event that the decision doesn't come off and so you know i, I mean the extent to which there are systems thinkers uh, I mean, good marketers are systems thinkers. Good marketers, a great phrase of Mark Ritson's, the average is the enemy of the marketer. Okay? Mm. Because averages generally hide more information than they reveal. Um, Back to your tax point at the beginning of the, of the show, is taxing to the aggregate rather than to the individuals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they're not there, you know, I mean, we could have a much more intelligent tax code. I mean, a lot of, you know, what is conventional about tax raising is simply a product of what was technologically possible in, you know, 1880 or 1943 or whatever. You know, the, the possibility yeah. exists for far more nuanced taxation. And if you had you said that, by the way, which is we're getting rid of the 45% tax rate for the first two years of earning over something or other, 
I think you could have told the story that made it acceptable. Yeah. Roy, listen, I've got so many questions from people um, via LinkedIn and we're running out of time. So we're going to no move problem. on if that's okay. So, so Rory, I wanted to ask you about the power of stories. Um, I had a question from somebody on LinkedIn, um, but just to sort of kick into that, there's something you said on the diary of a CEO, which I loved. And that was that I think stories are the PDF files of human information. They are the vehicle we use for storing information and the vehicle we use for sharing it. Stories are a universal format like the PDF file. And the question I had was, um, what are the most, um, the, the, um, the, the author of the question um, lauded you as a, a, a fantastic storyteller. And I think Stephen Bartlett said that you often impart information through the power of story. You tell a story in order to make your point. So the question um, was, what are the most important ingredients of a good story? Uh, there seem to be certain rules that stories share. And, you know, I'm not clever enough to lay down those rules. You know, there are books like The Seven Basic Plots. There are a couple of cases I can think of which are interesting kind of micro examples. There's the difference between data and story is the difference between, this is someone else's example, the king died, two weeks later the queen died. Okay, that's not a story. It's just facts. Whereas the king died and two weeks later the queen died of grief is now a story. Okay, it resonates with us. Suddenly, we find ourselves attaching all kinds of, uh, you know, inferring all kinds of additional information from this. Okay, like obviously, you know, um, uh, you know, the queen was very much in love with the king. Probably that meant he was a good king, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. Um, the other example is that great Kemingway case where he was challenged to write a story in uh, as few words as possible, and he wrote, you know, baby shoes for sale, never used. Okay. And it's the extent to which there is a kind of data compression in a story, which is we bring more to the party. It's true of an ad as well, that we almost bring more to the party, far more to the party than the information that is ostensibly contained on the page. And, you know, that's interesting. I mean, what's interesting is there probably is a kind of there is a book called The Origin of Stories by a chap called, I think, Boyd. And there's probably an evolutionary value to storytelling. Now, interestingly, um, in the book, um, uh, which is called Algorithms to Live By, uh, Brian Christian does point out that we always talk about social media being a major distortion on human perception or mass media being a major distortion. Brian Christian makes the point that the invention of language was a fundamentally weird thing in human development because previously your experience and your inverted commas Bayesian priors and your estimates of the likelihood of things was derived from your own experience, which was at least representative of reality in some senses, or it was representative of your own reality. Once humans developed the capacity to tell stories, something fundamentally changed, which is nobody told stories about boring everyday things, they told stories about exceptions. And so suddenly we were being exposed through the invention of language to much more exceptional information than banal information. And it's that old journalistic thing about, you know, uh, dog bites man is not a story. Man bites dog is a story. That's that's a front page story. Right. And so 
you know, fundamentally humans with the invention of language suddenly operated, you know, never mind Twitter, Facebook, etc. They suddenly had to operate in a very, very different informational environment. And you might argue that sometimes we get it wrong. Our estimation of the probability of certain events um, is distorted. I mean, there are various people like Bobby Duffy has written about this. OK, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 there's, there's a very interesting book, which I suppose is um, uh, about, you know, those aspects of of world really, really big changes in the world that because they're not very newsworthy, because they're slow, never really make it into the news cycle. You know, like the relative, the relative but not complete abolition of extreme starvation in the world which was almost a majority state in the 1950s, some form of hunger, okay? The fact that that's down now to not quite maybe single figures in a, you know, on a good, in a good year, okay, is an extraordinary significant event statistically, but it doesn't have story appeal. Whereas a child trapped down a well, okay, is, has absolutely massive story appeal. So there's a distortion to this. I mean, we, you know, we have to be alert to this. But the extent to which I was talking to someone, uh, uh, you know, although um, I think I was politically to the right of him, some, you know, something I've never understood about American politics is why people hate Elizabeth Warren so much. Because I used to be a huge Elizabeth Warren fan. I mean, she's a Democrat. OK, um, she um, uh, but I used to watch her various lectures and talks and think what an astonishingly insightful and interesting person. And this this guy said, he said, yeah, the trouble with Elizabeth Warren, she hadn't got a story. You know, having just been an academic and a general sort of policy wonk, uh, there wasn't any kind of interesting story. Now, Trump had a story, right? Um, so there's something I think which is really interesting here, which is it's something that's patently valuable because it brings our it brings our attention to things which we haven't experienced, but which we might experience in the future. And in that way, storytelling, possibly in an evolutionary setting, is a bit like the flight simulator for trainee yeah. pilots, right? You know, when you put trainee pilots into a flight simulator, you make things go wrong. Because there's no point, you know, if every flight is as boring as, as you know, as a standard flight, there's no point in the flight simulator in some respects, okay? So what you do when someone's in a flight simulator is you dick around with them a bit <laughs> to expose them to things that you, you wouldn't want to do in a real-life plane. But nonetheless, so there's that kind of flight simulator aspect to stories, which is valuable. On the other hand, when we confuse what is a flight simulator and what is reality, you know, a pilot who'd never actually flown professionally, but had just been exposed to flight simulator experimentations, would be convinced that you know, really weird things happen on every second flight. And there is something that does alarm me a bit, which is that um, when stories go beyond they go beyond storytelling, which is, mm, that's interesting, I shall pay some attention to it. And then they just become universally believed and axiomatic. Okay. Um, I think we ought to be a bit, I think we ought to be a bit cautious. One of the things I'm ranting about, which I think it links my interest in all kinds of areas, from behavioral science to futurism, etc. The assumption that the future will and must only consist of ever greater agglomeration and concentration into large cities. Yep, it's been a trend in the developing world for quite a while, okay? Yes, it's even a trend, or was until recently, until COVID, in the United States, that city centres and downtowns were becoming more fashionable and more appealing, and, you know, 
But equally, we've seen long periods in the history of the developed world where there's massive migration out of cities. Okay, and the assumption that that you know you'll get people who genuinely, I mean, uh, okay, I'll give you a good one. Okay, um, what's the population of Kent or Essex? You can do either. Yeah, okay, and Essex, well, the other one, funnily enough, it's 1.85 million for both, okay? So Kent and Essex between them are actually significantly bigger than Birmingham. And that's a load of people basically living in a mixture of towns, a few conurbations, quite a lot of rural idyll, each being very easily accessible from the other, okay? So the idea that the idea that for Britain to function, you know, we simply won't have enough space unless we cram everybody into vast megalopolises, it basically isn't true. And yet it's become kind of you you know, if you have if you have discussion about transport, it will be a load of people basically going blah 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 bicycle, blah blah blah, you know, mass transit system, blah 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 decarbonisation. Ooh, cars are terrible, okay? Actually, okay, 80% of the British population, it's a load of Londoners, basically, you know, just, and these things have just become axiomatic assumptions. And actually, my argument is, no, I, there, there is, no, I'm, I mean, if you look at other evidence, okay, incidence of mental health problems, incidence of schizophrenia and depression, much higher in high density, high rise housing than in, you know, flat, spacious housing. Everybody's talking about, I was joking about this on Twitter, everybody's talking about the 15 minute city. Well, a 15-minute city, there's a technical term for it, and it's called a town, okay, right? Everything's accessible to you. All the shops are in walking distance, okay? You know, it's a town, right? And also, what's the point of inventing the internet, okay? What's the point of, you know, of, of developing all these technologies like the electric bike if you insist that everybody crumbs themselves together in enormous megalopolises, which have a very significant, they have an economic upside and they have a creative upside to a degree. But quality in quality of life terms, I mean, in okay, there are reasons why young people flock to cities. Okay, you know, I get that. Okay, maximising opportunity, both romantic, sexual, you know, career, economic, okay. But actually, to be honest, you know, once people reach a certain age, they'd probably be happier moving out. And yet this assumption that, uh, that agglomeration is, is the future just seems to be really dangerous. Why, why, are we, why are we just making enormous decisions based on something which is a contention? Yeah, I mean, I think since COVID, people have started to move away anyway because of the, 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 the need to be in the office the presenteeism yeah. is going away a little bit at least for, for some companies or, or a lot of companies by the, by the way by the way it means i can work from anywhere i mean there was a great easyjet advert this week i don't know if you saw it actually it was pr not an advert but they'd come up with a, a holiday package which was a month in egypt and they said it was cheaper for a family of four to go and live all inclusive in egypt with an easyjet holiday than to live in the uk and heat their um, home it, yes, rather than heating the home, um, <coughs> heating at home, and all of the rest of it. Now, I don't know whether that stacks up. I haven't looked into the, the minutiae of that package, but I thought it was a brilliant story, um, an amazing way to um, to sort of promote. Well, I mean, one, one, of the, one of the awful things is that it's basically illegal under housing regulations to build tiny pod homes. But that's what London probably needs. You know, it needs it needs people to be given the flexibility to go and live in, you know, Margate or wherever, okay, or Brighton, 
and to have a tiny pod in London, which is literally like a beach hut. Okay, you can crash there, you can work there, you know, you can have a poo and a shower. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Right. And um, the tragedy is that that's probably a form of housing which a lot of people would snap up and be extremely efficient, but you're not allowed to build it. Instead, you build two bedroom flats, which are basically tailor made for the buy to let landlord, but absolutely useless for raising a family or for solo occupation. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, one of the things that really interests me about this is I was always a big fan in behavioral science terms of a guy called David Rock, who had a model. He's a neuroscientist. And he had a model of things humans care about that we don't really measure or quantify or understand, but which are majorly uh, important in human emotional terms and therefore in behavioral terms. And his model is called SCARF, and it's status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness and fairness now there's a creative director i can't remember which one it was but i think it was someone at cdp who said managing a creative department is relatively a lot easier if you know which of three things an individual is motivated by and he said most people are motivated by all three but they're primarily motivated by one of the three if you find out which one of these three things it is you you'll find them much easier to manage he said the three things are Money, power, and autonomy. Now, what was interesting about white-collar employment, I don't think it was true of all forms of employment, because I would argue that people who became taxi drivers were people who, for some reason, either psychological or circumstantial, had a particular appetite for autonomy. If, if you ever talk to taxi drivers, and I do a lot, okay, you'll find that they generally have massive prejudices in terms of what time of day they like to work. For example, you know, I don't understand people who do, 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 do days. I mean, the traffic's terrible. You know, I just do nights. Da, 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 da. But also they value the fact they can pick their kid up from school and then do a bit of taxi driving. OK. You know, they, you know, my father always believed that the reason plumbers and builders turn up late is because they hate they hate timekeeping and punctuality, which is why they became plumbers and, and you know, and, and handymen. You know, it's why the guy never turns up when he says is because he's temperamentally disinclined to work to a schedule. But in white collar employment, we did quite a lot at one point to cater to power and people's power urges, although that's largely, I think, diminished by the fact that all that power means in the modern world is you get to be told no by a more senior person than the finance function. You know, no other, you know, there's, there isn't really any power anymore. It's just, you know, you, 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 everybody defers to the god of spreadsheet, you know. And um, but then there's then there's money. And obviously, obviously, you know, companies do a good job of supplying people with money to some, in some cases. OK. And they understand that people like money. And that's true. People do like money. I'm not I'm not dissing conventional economics to the extent of saying people would rather have less money than more. But the autonomy question is really interesting because it was just assumed that when you went into white collar employment, autonomy was not a bargaining chip. Everybody turned up at 8.30 on Monday. Everybody left at 5.30 on Friday. That was it. Those were the, you know, you know, those were the, uh, the deals. That was what you, you took it or leave it. Took, took it or left it. And now we suddenly had, and the problem was you couldn't demand autonomy because it made you an outlier. If you were the weird guy who worked four days a week, it was career damaging, okay? If you were the weird guy who, for example, you know, didn't work on month, on Wednesday afternoons, you know, nobody, I think I think 10 to 20% of people before COVID would have taken a four-day week 
if the choice had been available to them. But they realized very quickly that one, it would have been career damaging. And two, they would have ended up getting paid 80% of their previous salary for doing 95% of the work. So they weren't willing to take that deal. Okay, I think a lot of people would have taken it were it not for those two factors. And now what we see, and we almost see a kind of collective bargaining, actually, it's almost like trade unionism for white collar workers, in that there's a collective discovery that autonomy is something people actually value much more than they expected. And I hope, I think there's a collective discovery that if I can work to some extent to my own terms chronologically, I'm both happier and more productive. I'll give you a tip for your, lo your lovely listeners, tip for your lovely listeners. If you um, can crack a couple of days in the week where you work all morning, start early because you're not, if you're not commuting, you start work at eight o'clock in the morning, you work till one, okay? It's five hours, okay? Then you take the afternoon off and then after dinner at eight o'clock, you work till midnight, Okay, that's nine hours work. You will get just as much done as you would in a conventional working day, if not more, except it feels like you're on holiday. You can literally hack your brain in this way to actually produce well-being without reducing productivity simply by changing the order and timescale of the things you do. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more, but we're tiny at six cells, but we just say, basically say there's work to be done. Do it whenever you want to do it. Uh, if that's, I woke up the other morning, literally this week at 3 a.m. in the morning, wide awake. And so I got up and did four hours work and then went back to bed for a couple of hours. Well, you know, funny that, you, that, you, know, you know that thing West Cork, that fantastic crime documentary about the English guy widely believed, but with insufficient evidence to have murdered a French holiday homeowner uh, in near a place called Skull in Ireland. Right. No, I've not heard of it. And, well, he's a sort of journalist and freelance writer. And one of the things that arouses enormous suspicion is that he got up at three o'clock in the morning, claims to have got up at three o'clock in the morning, gone down to his study to write for two hours and then returned to bed. OK. And all these people are kind of looking at this with complete disbelief. And I'm sitting there watching mm -hmm. that going, I do that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see anything that weird about that. If I wake up at three, and you know, I've got to have a pee anyway because I'm fifty six, and then you yeah. end up making yourself a cup of tea, and you think, "Well, I'm up now," you know. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I do. I didn't think. I think that, that was weird. And you've got to be in the office at nine. You try and force yourself to go back to sleep because exactly. otherwise you're going to have a exactly. horrible day. But when you mm. can get up and work when it suits you, when your body says, "I'm awake, I've got ideas, I'm, I'm ready to go," and it's so much better for you and your employer. Um, you, that, that you work in those hours. How many? How many dead hours do we have after lunch? Maybe we're a little bit lethargic and we're not getting that much done. But also, oh, by by, by taking by taking your afternoons off, you get more exposure to daylight, which is, I think, inherently good for you. You get more yeah. exposure to nature, which I think is inherently good for you in all kinds of ways we don't yet fully understand. And also yeah. by taking a break. I'm fifty six. Okay, I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know. Um, you're a big man, but you're out of shape. Okay, I'm not really um, brilliantly optimised anymore for doing nine hours, nine hour things at a stretch. Mm. But five and four, I'm fine. Okay, now this yeah. is you know, this is really really important because we'll only obtain significant human productivity gains in service industries if we get to experiment. What we forget about Taylorism is people in hindsight think that Taylor said, don't do it like this, do it like that. Okay? Because Taylor was quite successful in some respects, okay? In other respects it was psychologically catastrophic. But anyway, okay. 
And it wasn't all bad. That's all I'm saying. It's attempts to actually, you know, uh, uh, to actually bring kind of efficiency to uh, human activity and not entirely misguided. But what people forget about Taylor is involved in an enormous amount of experimentation. Now, white collar employment has never experimented. And again, I'll recommend to you the blog post um, by uh, the economist Noah Smith, which is called um, uh, it's called Distributed Service Sector Productivity. And he believes that we can see in the next five to 10 years a kind of Zoom boom where the performance of service industries gets better as companies learn to reinvent their practices around the new technology, which is, among others, video calling. Okay, right. And he thinks we haven't actually seen the productivity gains from the Internet in the service sector yet. OK, although you are you might arguably might say that in things like education and MOOCs, the productivity gains are pretty spectacular. OK, there are some pockets where the whole thing is miraculous. And, it, you know, um, but in overall service sector businesses, we haven't seen those gains. And he says we shouldn't be surprised by that because the gains to electrification in factories took 30 years to emerge. They didn't emerge when you invented the technology. They emerged when people discovered how best to use it. And that meant not one big electric motor, which is what people did when they just replaced a big steam engine with a big electric motor. It was lots of little motors in different places. And it took 30 years to make that transition. But after that transition was made, both productivity and factory safety significantly massively improved. And I think, you know, the point was that nobody in white collar work experimented because you weren't allowed to. OK, look, get in early, look busy. That was basically the, that was basically all we experimented with. OK, yeah. you know, get in earlier than your boss and always look busy. And actually, yeah, sure. you know, um, uh, you know, stay at home and chat to people are also, I think, part of the efficiency paradigm. But those things were never actually treated as variables. They were treated as uh, as undesirable facets that were to be eliminated as far as possible. And it's very it's very disingenuous for all these employers to say, we need people back in the office so we can have serendipitous creative encounters. Because those very same people, to a large extent, destroy those serendipitous encounters with email and open plan offices. Mm. Okay, Pre-email, you know, everybody had a certain number of hours unavoidably in the day when you couldn't do very much. Now, if anybody finds themselves with half an hour free, they just go and stare at a screen. If they're in the office, that's not what they should be doing with their spare half hour. It's not what the office is for. You can stare at a screen anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Listen, I've got loads more questions, but mm. I think you've got to go now, haven't you? No, I can do a bit. I can do a little bit longer. Don't worry. Are you sure? Well, yeah. you tell me what you let, tell let me. Let, I want me, to be let, let, let me just go and have a very cheeky look at my. Now. I'll just have a very cheeky look at my diary just to check. But I think I can go for another ten minutes, or a bit more actually. Yeah, a bit more. Twenty oh, minutes. Amazing. Thank you so much. So, so loads of questions from people on LinkedIn. So the next one is how best to learn. So um, the the. Um, the question is, um, you obviously read a lot, um, you, Rory, and um, the, the, um, the question was asking, how do you retain and absorb information? Do you block time for deep thinking as you read, after you read, or how does it happen? Very interesting question. Um, uh, it's not only reading. I mean, I, I, read, I read quite a lot um, if I can. The first thing is, I don't do this enough. You know that phrase in politics, which is that being in opposition builds intellectual capital and being in government burns intellectual capital. I think there's an aspect where taking 
you know, taking a week's reading holiday and actually, you know, freeing up time for discretionary inquiry. I need to do more of that because, you know, what I find is that writing and podcasting burns the ideas that you've generated through, um, uh, you know, uh, inquiry and inquisitiveness. And it's, it's why I'd, I'd never be happy only being on the speaking circuit. OK, you've got to be a practitioner speaker because otherwise, uh, you know, eventually you're just going to you know, you're just going to run out of uh, of material. Um, and I also feel there's something a bit weird, you know, weirdly dishonest, you know, about it. You know, you know, you want the guy who's lecturing on brain surgery to be a brain practicing brain surgeon. Um, the other the other thing is that um, uh, it's not only reading. I'm a very big advisor to everybody to say if there's one kind of possibly business uh, expense you make, uh, it's to join YouTube premium. <laughs> because... And also watch it on your TV, not exclusively on your handheld device. Because YouTube is eventually becoming a video Wikipedia. It's become so vast that you can search for surprisingly abstruse tropics and find that someone's made a film about it or a lecture about it or something similar. And that's yeah. really, really important. And so I, I prefer to watch than read as well. I, I love reading, but I find that I have to be fresh to read. Um, and often I spend my day working and then I think, oh, I'll read in the evening, but I'm too tired by then to take it in properly. So I love that. Uh, Jordan Peterson, for example, there's so many wonderful talks that he's done where you can just call it up on your, on your TV and you can sit there and sort of passively take the information in. And it's much easier for me uh, than reading. No, no. I'm so, also, I hate to say this, but I had a friend who was a barrister and he said his great resentment about becoming a barrister, even though he's a KC and a very successful barrister, is it destroyed, the, it destroyed reading for pleasure for him. Because he said, in the course of my working life, I have to read so damn much that the idea mm. of getting home and reading more fills me with horror. So he said, the one good thing is I've got massively into classical music because that's what I do in, in my leisure time. But reading for pleasure has been destroyed. Now, I'm not as extreme a case as that. Nobody brings me sort of 2,000-page briefs on obscure cases of kind of corporate law. But email, to some extent, basically just exhausts my eyes by the time, you know, I don't want yeah. to be staring into the near distance for another two hours. I have the same thing with phone calls. In my early career in sales, I was making loads and loads and loads and loads of phone calls. And I got to the point that in my personal life, you I never rang your mum. I speak to somebody. No, mm. I, I, I text my mum. It's sad, isn't it? I either see her face to face or we WhatsApp. Um, I don't like to, to, to just chat, basically. It's just, I think it's um, once you're kind of forced to do it for work for a certain period of time, it's not that much fun to do out of work. No, that's um, really, really interesting. So YouTube Premium is the is the answer. Um, have you ever used um, Blinkist? Um, it's an app that basically takes a book and then gives you audible chunks for each chapter, so you get the gist of a book. Well, I, I, I'm aware of it, and I, I've looked at it, but I'm also, to be honest, I mean, the other trick is I'm a quite wasteful Kindle buyer in that mm. the number of Kindle books I buy, which I read cover to cover, is you know probably a minority. Yeah, um, I'm also I'm also an Audible fan. Um, uh, I think I may be addicted to buying books, but don't have the time to read them. It's very strange, I and mean, we we all we all buy far more books than we read, and it's it's kind yeah. of weird when you look at it. I mean, I don't fully understand it. You know, you might yeah. argue with paper books. There was a reason because you know if you didn't buy the book three months after it came out, you'd have trouble getting hold of it. Okay, 
Right. But with Kindle books, it's a completely ira- a completely irrational desire, except for the fact that if I don't buy it now, I'll forget what it was called, I guess, which I have done a few times. A way of bookmarking. <laughs> and yeah. so... Um, uh, so that's that's just a really interesting, you know, it's a really interesting aspect, and um, so that, you know that's one thing that that kind of interests me. Um, I also think that um, our education you system, you our education system, our education system over specialises people too young, particularly if you look at the choice architecture of science subjects, where to do a science A levels requires that you must more or less give up the chance of doing any humanities A level. Okay, so whereas you can do history, French and philosophy, okay, three very different humanities subjects, once you basically decide, oh, I quite like to be a doctor or a scientist or something, it's basically maths, maths, physics, chemistry or maths, maths, physics, biology or chemistry, biology, more likely. Okay, and that awful choice architecture where 16 year olds who go, look, I really like science, but I don't want to say goodbye to all humanities subjects at the age of 16 basically then end up not doing any science subjects at all. And Rishi seems to be, according to the front of the Times or the Telegraph, seems to be wanting to create a British baccalaureate, which is a much broader form of education at the level of kind of 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds, which I would entirely support. Right. And so I think from what I'm reading, it's that you actually make the subjects at GCSE fewer and slightly narrower and you focus on the things which are kind of essential for everybody to know. And then you allow people, strangely, a slightly broader set of, of uh, A-levels, uh, as it were, inverted commas. Okay. But if that's, if that's the thought, which I think also emerged from the Times, there was a time of Times inquiry on education, I think that is, put it this way, at the very least I'll say it's a very, very valuable experiment because I think they may be onto something there. Okay. And I retain, so I retain, I mean, I'm mathematically good enough to read books that use some maths. I'm not, unfortunately, mathematically good enough to read maths books. But I do try and get it very interested in what I call, this is my bit of career advice, is get in, get invited, develop a hinterland. So get involved in fields which are tangential or narrowly overlapping to your core field. Because there's a wonderful phrase of Jeremy Bullmore's, which is the best books about advertising aren't about advertising. The best mm-hmm. books on advertising aren't about advertising. And actually, you'll learn more about advertising in some cases by reading books on evolutionary biology or on behavioral economics than you will actually from learning books that are dedicated to an advertising audience. And so maintaining a hinterland seems to me just really, really important. Fabulous. Right, I've got one more question, then some really quick... Yeah, okay, no, that's absolutely fine. I've got another 10, 10 minutes if you need them. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. So, um, uh, chap on LinkedIn uh, runs a heavy construction equipment company, and he feels that his sales and marketing are probably quite traditional and boring and probably probably not working that much. And he loves the way that you think about things differently and, and wonder what your advice would be on about how they might reinvent the traditional model of sell, selling a fairly... Um, functional, I would say, uh, product. One thing to do is to look at experimentation in B2B pricing so that you avoid narrow comparison. So there's a guy I know who's, you know, a little bit of a hero of mine, um, and he run, he's called Jones, and he works for a company called Backhouse Jones, which is a company that does legal work for the transportation industry. 
And their pricing model is something like 20p per vehicle per day, and we'll take care of all your legal expenses. So what's brilliant about that is that essentially, when he actually speaks at conferences, I shouldn't give away his trick, should I? He used to put sort of 30p under everybody's seat and say, and as a treat, I've given you your first day's cover for free. And that's a brilliant framing of why wouldn't I pay, you know, I'm paying 100 grand for a bus or Two, actually, you know, a big coach should be 300 grand. Why wouldn't I pay 30 pence a day, you know, to make sure that all litigation involving that particular vehicle was basically taken care of? And I think they're extending to other fields like HR support and so on. But one thing to look at is look at, you know, Rolls-Royce did the genius move, which not so genius during COVID, of course, but genius move for most circumstances of effectively leasing uh, aircraft engines. So you paid by the hour. Okay. Made possible by telematics. One great advantage of this is you avoid the procurement problem of totally narrow comparison because it's a completely different way to pay. So look at it, you know, so you they, you can't say whether someone's cheaper or more expensive than your competitor. It's just a different way to pay. That tends to get the customer focused on value, not focused on price or focused on cost more accurately. OK, so that's one area where you, where you it might pay you to experiment. The other thing in B2B, by the way, is you mentioned early on in the talk that B2B is actually P2P. And that's true. Uh, Zoom, I think, is highly significant in this. Because it provides B2B sales with a very, very necessary halfway house between not meeting someone or the expense of a face-to-face meeting. Okay, So if, if I say to you, I'll have a chat with you on Zoom for half an hour, the opportunity cost of that half hour is half an hour. Okay, right. okay. If I agree to meet you in London, that's basically two-thirds of a morning out of my day by the time i've got travel time by the time i can't have any adjacent meetings but all of that if i agree to meet you in amsterdam it's two days out of my uh, uh, working week and if i agree to meet you in new york it's a week out of my working week effectively okay if you look at it from an opportunity cost i'm also reluctant to meet you for half an hour on wednesday in 2023 because i might want to go on holiday that week well actually if i agree to meet you on zoom I can actually keep my engagement by just coming in from the beach and having the decency to put on a shirt. Mm. So the importance of Zoom in terms of, and webinars, okay, are, if you'd like, a low opportunity, webinars are a low opportunity cost conference or trade fair, and Zoom is a low opportunity cost meeting. So the chance everybody who's in B2B purchasing should, if they're being intelligent, be meeting more people now than they were in 2019. They should be exploring the market more. They should be, you know, market testing more than they were doing in 2019 because the cost of finding out from somebody else, basically, you know, it could be it could be as little as 20 minutes. It is the flip side of that Zoom fatigue, though, where so many video meetings have gone in and people are working from home and their diaries littered with dialing in, having a, having a conversation with someone, dialing out, doing it again, um, that it's, it's become harder. I think I, I hear from some of our clients that it's become actually harder to get people to take a call because they've got so many internal calls to do via video. Yeah, 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 we, we, can get, we can get that wrong. OK, just, OK. If I look at my yesterday... Okay, which was mostly a Zoom day with a trip into Beckenham at three o'clock. Okay, mm-hmm. 
If you had replaced those five meetings with physical meetings, particularly if those physical meetings were in different locations, the day would have been either impossible or intolerable. So we're in danger here. I think, I think this is an asymmetry of perception. I'm very interested in perceptual, perceptual asymmetries, okay? Where we see the downside of Zoom much more saliently than we see the upside. So, you know, when you have a Zoom call, to, okay, I mean, to take an extreme case, okay, right, next time you do a transatlantic Zoom call, take the day off beforehand, you know, strap yourself into a seat for eight hours in your own home, right? Uh, yeah. Then, you know, uh, then, you know then, pretend, <laughs> <laughs> then pretend you're in a hotel by charging yourself five pounds every time you take something out of your fridge, okay? Yeah. Then take a taxi eight miles in a circular journey. Then start your transatlantic Zoom call. Okay. Funnily enough, I, uh, okay, what you're seeing in the Zoom call is you're, you're seeing how a Zoom call is slightly worse than a meeting. And I agree, by the way, you need to ration them to a degree. I'm not suggesting. And the worst thing that can happen is you end up with a mix of physical calls and too many Zoom calls, which means you end up effectively working a pandemic life and a pre-pandemic life in parallel, which is unsustainable, right? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the world needs to catch up with infrastructure. One, I'm horrified that no one like Logitech or Nikon has made like portable video conferencing equipment. You know, something that you fold up like a laptop and it's basically just designed, optimized around video calling. Yeah. You know, plug in a pair of headphones, you know, done. Okay. You could, you know, you could build in 5G to the bloody thing, couldn't you? I would I'd buy one of those like a shot. Right. Because it would save me having to do that kind of weird thing where you're sitting in a branch of Costa, you know, screwing tripods into webcams. So, you know, I'm also also we need to we need to work on infrastructure. London is fundamentally short of little pod spaces where you can go and obtain privacy for an hour. Well, that's that was going to be my point, Rory. Um, I don't know if you visited the new Brewdog bar in Waterloo Station. Um, so it's set back from the main station. It's a huge bar. It's got a slide, multiple levels and stuff. But they've built in Zoom rooms or video conferencing rooms, which are basically soundproof. So you can go it. You can work remotely from this bar and then go, actually, I need to make a call. Go into one of these tiny little rooms, shut the door and have a call with whoever you need to make a call with. And they it, could, it, could even be, so it could be actually having a meeting with a person in the pod next to you. Quite possibly. Yeah, if you need a little be... bit of privacy and you both like a pint. Um, yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm going to have a look at that. How do they charge for them? Uh, the, the rooms are free. You can just walk into them. I, I think that what they've tried to do is create a, a space that you could work from. And rather than pay for the space, you pay for the beer. Got um, it. Because the it. whole thing is Brewdog, right? So I mean, if you think about it, Starbucks is 20% of Starbucks's business is the oblique renting of tables. Yes. And Wi-Fi yeah. and toilets. I always make this point that basically... You know, the the you know, the new Maslow's hierarchy of needs is kind of Wi-Fi, coffee, toilet, flat horizontal surface chair. And yes. if you've got that, you know, this is what train companies need to understand, really. You know, that, 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 you know, if you've got that, you basically can function. Yeah. But yeah, by the sure. way, when I talked about experimentation and Taylorist experimentation, one of the things we need to experiment with is the importance of keeping periods of discretionary time clear. Yes. And we make the mistake, I think, of accepting diary engagements when they're far off because our diary is empty, forgetting the fact that other engagements are going to pile up on that date. And actually, the business of um, nudge, nudging people to reserve certain day parts for discretionary time is, I think, I, I think we fail to recognise that. 
it's so true and it's, it's huge and, and um, it's something that I'm passionate about time management. Um, I, I've actually offered to, um, to to put on some webinars and what I've learned about time management over the last 30 years of working for the young for, for 15 to 24 year olds because I think one of the one of the, uh, the, the things that I, I, I've spent years studying, reading, learning, optimizing my time management process to get to where I am today. But how much Do you follow time a guy called, I got to it? Do you follow yeah, a guy much, called um, Carl on YouTube? There's some guy called Carl who used to live in Korea who's like a productivity <laughs> guru. My brother-in-law is kind of slightly pervily obsessed with him. Um, right, no, but, um, but no, I mean, one of the things that really good logistics people know is that there are switching costs that every time you switch between doing one thing and another thing, yeah. there's a switching cost. There yes. are also, uh, the great paper to read on that as a tip is by um, Paul Graham, the Y Combinator founder, and it's called manager Make a Schedule versus Manager Schedule. Yeah. And it makes the point that there are certain forms of work that can only be done by having long swathes of empty, empty time. Yeah, one of those, be- by the way, is book writing. What I discovered when I wrote my book is if you take two hours off to write the book, you write nothing. If you take a day off to write the book, you write a bit, but not that much. If you take three consecutive days off, the third day is actually eight times more productive than the first. I have no idea why why it works like that, but it just does. And I would say in order to do that, you have to clear your schedule beforehand. Otherwise, your mind's constantly going to what you should be doing other than this three days of writing. But um, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. So, quick fire round. I've um, got a few questions here, which um, I think should finish us off nicely. Thank you so much. That's been so interesting so far. I like um, quick fire questions. Go on. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, you may have already answered this in the uh, in the process of our conversation, or perhaps not. But the, the first one is: What book have you learned the most from? Weirdly, okay, I'm not going to say which book I've learned the most from. The book I deserve to give credit to. Um, is the book that got me started on this journey okay. uh, of realizing that statistics of complex organization, uh, complex systems and the mathematics of complex systems is a fundamentally different kind of maths. And it was a book called Full House in the United States. And it was called Life's Grandeur in the UK because bizarrely, uh, the author thought that the British didn't know about poker. So he didn't want to call it Full House. Um right. But it was written by, oddly, by a guy who is actually widely disliked in evolutionary biology circles. So most of the other uh, the other biologists I talk to and I admire uh, are very much anti this guy book. But it's a book by Stephen Jay Gould, and it was recommended in marketing by a client sometime in like 1992 or something like that. Right. I read this book recommendation and I went and bought the book. Actually, probably must be 1995 because it was probably post Amazon, actually, or 96. I might have bought it from a bookpages.co.uk, which was the British precursor of Amazon, by the way. And uh, Life's Grandeur, The Spread of Excellence from Plato to Darwin is the full title. Now, it's not the best book I've ever read. The best book might be Taleb. It might be The Mating Mind by, you know, thing. But the point about this book was it was the first book that fundamentally reshaped my thinking. Okay. Fantastic. And so everything else I read 
on related and adjacent topics effectively was a product of reading that book. And whoever that poor client was who recommended the book, I've never been able to thank them because without going through through every single past copy of marketing on microfiche, unless it is searchable, marketing from the 90s, uh, I, I'll never be able to find out who the person was to thank them. But there you go. Well, if you're listening, marketer who uh, recommended the book, yeah, exactly. Please, yeah. Love to say thank yeah. You. Okay. Okay, next question. If you could be in the audience for a talk from any one advertising legend, past or present, who would it be? Um, Howard Luck Gossage, probably. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I'm going to choose someone who's dead. Um, I think possibly Steve Harrison would undoubtedly back me up on this. Um, that he was the most interesting and broad thinking of the ad people. And also, there are great ad people who don't have much to say. You know, I'm not going to name them, OK? But they're fantastic people who are wonderful and brilliant, but they're, they're kind of practitioners, not teachers. OK. And the interesting thing about um, Gossage was the breadth of his inquiry. He was the person who actually effectively made um, Marshall McLuhan famous. Um, and... Oddly, David Ogilvy and he, although very, very different, kind of respected and liked each other. I might, I obviously, corporate loyalty would have required that I said David Ogilvy, but I did meet him. So, um, so, so that one's probably, you know, I'm probably using, a, using up a joker slightly wastefully uh, yes. if, I, if I play it on, on David Ogilvy. Fair enough. Uh, another question from LinkedIn. Uh, what browser tabs do you have open most often? Um, uh, interesting one, that. Uh, obviously, Outlook email and um, uh, Outlook calendar. Uh, but the other, one I ha- I, um, the other one I have open is uh, the Times Cryptic Crossword. Okay. Um, and the reason, for, the reason I'm going to say that is I don't, you know, I, I, now, I think there are others, by the way. I think you can derive inspiration and creative inspiration from lots of different interesting things. But two ways in which I always feel, maybe erroneously, that I'm practising creativity is detective fiction and crime fiction, or indeed true life crime, which is how do you find out the truth from a thicket of of non-information and misinformation? Okay, mm-hmm. How do you get to the core essential insight from the thickets of people not wanting to tell you the truth, uh, you know, or people, um, uh, you know, providing you with information which is entirely irrelevant? The other one is, I suppose, similar to that, which is cryptic crosswords, which I absolutely love. I think they're an art form. And I always recommend that people get into them because it's the whole business of there's a surface of a clue from which you then have to disentangle. There's the question, I suppose, which is the fundamental question in every business uh, situation. And this is not me speaking. It's a very, very eminent strategy professor at UCLA, whose name I've briefly forgotten. Every question in business, every business case study, ultimately boils down to a single question, which is, what is really going on here? And it sounds banal, okay? What is really going on here? But actually, once you realise, once you think about it more deeply, actually that seemingly banal question is exactly the place to start. Got it. Okay. And last one. Um, you spend a lot of your time, obviously, working with marketers of B2C brands um, and helping them to ask better questions and come up with better solutions using behavioral science. But what's the one thing that you know about behavioral science that most people, like the general public, could benefit from understanding? Uh, I don't know about the general public, um, because the general public, that's a very interesting question. I mean, 
uh, you know, general public, I think, would benefit from knowing about sunk cost bias. OK, so one of my early lessons in behavioural science was my wife and I both had bizarrely cheap first class return tickets to Brussels on I think it was Sabina or something, which we would bought in some sort of auction or whatever it was. OK. And two days before we set off, we both went down with the flu and we were actually struggling to pack our cases. We hadn't booked hotels or anything else unrefundable. OK. And then I sat down and remembered sunk cost bias and said, had we not bought these tickets, would we be planning to go to Belgium this week? No. We would go, well, I'm certainly not going anywhere this weekend because I feel shit. What we were about to do was double down by basically spending another 500 quid on hotels and restaurants while feeling shit. Yeah. So what we did is we I threw the tickets in the bin. I later discovered you could get the tax back. So I hadn't lost nearly as much money as I thought. And we basically went and overdosed on Lemsip and watched films for the weekend and had a vastly better time for vastly less money. Yeah. And that sunk cost bias thing of knowing when to quit, by the way, is an important factor. Now, by the way, there is a value to sunk cost bias because sometimes it's perseverance. The second thing from complexity science, I think, uh, I'd like more widely known, is the fact that the adoption of new behaviours is a sigmoid curve. Slow at first, then rapid, then slow, because two things, okay? One, people often look at aggregate sales of a product, a new product, and they ask the question, this isn't growing very fast, I think we should cancel it. But nothing grows very fast at first, okay? The mobile phone, the television, you know, anything significantly that demands behavioural change grows slow at first, before both habit and social proof kick in when it grows very Shocking fast. Jolly. Now, two things. One, do people spend their advertising too late? Do they spend their advertising when the product is already growing through social contagion, when they should be spending the, the advertising money when it looks like it's getting a worse return simply for that social contagion to take hold more quickly? In other words, should we be spending more in the flat part of the S-curve, where, where our advertising looks inefficient, and less in the steep part of the S-curve, where our advertising would look efficient simply because a large part of that growth is just the product of this natural effect? Okay, that's the first yeah. question. The second question is, the question to ask when you launch a new product is not really how many people are buying it this year compared to last year. It's of the people who buy it, how many stick with it? And it's, it's a different question because there are products, okay, I call ratchet products. It took, it took 10 years to sell the British on multi-channel TV, 15 years. Murdoch had to buy the rights to you know, premiership football and practically everything else in order to get people to actually accept the fact they needed more than four channels. Now, nobody who's had multi-channel TV goes back, okay? Nobody would go back to terrestrial TV, but it's wrong to say that because people aren't taking up multi-channel TV in large quantities, we should therefore abandon the attempt. And that that effective, you know, uh, S-curve, by not being widely known in business, I think causes the abandonment of good... I, 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 by now, I would have got round to buying Google Glass, right? Mm. And I think we abandon products too quickly. Um, because we're looking at ag we're looking at aggregate behavior, not individual behavior. The Japanese toilet it will take fifty years, maybe seventy years, before the normal toilet in the UK is a Japanese toilet which actually cleans your bum for you. Okay, right. but the interesting fact about the Japanese toilet 
is not its slow pace of penetration growth. The interesting fact about the Japanese toilet is that nobody who has a Japanese toilet is satisfied with a basic toilet. Right. You talked about this with the shopping trolley, didn't you? People wouldn't use it because it's a bit weird. Um, in, 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 so a guy called Goldman, I think he was called Goldman, who ran a company called the Humpty Dumpty Supermarket in Los Angeles, paid actors to push shopping trolleys around and pretend to shop on the grounds yeah. that no one wanted to be the single weirdo with the trolley. Yeah. So once it, they were familiar with it and they could see other people doing it, that social proof, then it became the norm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it took a so while. I mean, you know, undoubtedly, I mean, uh, young people can't genuinely don't understand what I'm talking about when I explain that I used a mobile phone on Oxford Street in about 1997. No, no, it would have been earlier than that. It would have been sorry, it would have been about 19. Actually, it would have been 1989. 1989, I used a mobile phone on Oxford Street. Someone phoned me. I didn't phone them, and people shouted abuse at me from passing cars. Yeah, yeah, it's um, very interesting. Listen, we've taken so much more of your time than you offered so thank you very much indeed rory it's been fascinating as, as always i think we've got enough of three podcasts in there uh, in one sitting so uh, it's always an absolute pleasure thank you so yeah. much uh, for your and, time and, and because we're on riverside i know not to close the tab i will leave the tab open until it's done an adequate up upload fabulous thank you very much thank you very Excellent. much for being on the podcast it's always a pleasure, always a pleasure. thank you very much indeed